Welcome, welcome. Welcome to Plato's Pod. Today is May 2, 2021, Sunday. Discussion that we meet to learn and be even more excited, hopefully, about today's subject. This podcast is audio recording of a live meetup group discussion. We meet through Toronto Philosophy Meetup, Calgary Philosophy Meetup, Online Rebels. I'm Eva Ellis. I'll be coordinating this episode. James Myers will be managing discussion today. Hi, James. Good morning, Eva. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. And I'm excited. How are you? Good, thanks. Yeah, I'm um, excited to discuss today's session. I mean, it's an exciting and long thought after topic, this question of whether Atlantis existed. And uh, I'd like to get into that question to start off with today's session. Uh, but I think it's also an exciting session because I think I have the opportunity here to pick up on a, on themes from several of the other dialogues that we have just recently di- discussed, including the Timaeus, um, which I keep going back to. But Atlantis is talked about at the beginning of the Timaeus. So that that's kind of where it's introduced. And then the Critias, which we're discussing today, is kind of the continuation of the uh, of the Timaeus. Um, so we'll have a chance maybe to to delve into some of the themes again that were that Plato discussed in the Timaeus and that we discussed. And then I think also Phaedrus that we will uh, have a chance maybe to go back to some of those themes because in the Critias, uh, Plato does talk about communication and, and the Phaedrus was all about communication. And so I think we will be able to touch on some of those themes there. So I wanted to welcome everyone to this morning's session. It's great to see a number of people returning, uh, participating again. And it's also wonderful to see some new faces and, and voices joining us today. I think, you know, there's no right or wrong answers with Plato. I think it's really what we make of it, of what he says. And it's make it's what we make of our own dialogue. And so I think we have a chance here to find out some new things. And I found in the past discussions that I've had a chance to learn things that I did not know before. And this was knowledge that was brought to us by the other participants. And so uh, I think every every session we learn something new. And that's the advantage, I think, of the podcasting that we do, that we have a chance to go back and re-listen to the discussion. And so I think that's a chance to expand our knowledge. So those who haven't uh, listened to the podcast episodes that went before this, they are on rss.com slash podcast slash Plato's Pod. Invite you to to take a listen to those and uh, to share it to anybody who you think might be interested. I think it's the the whole point of Plato is to um, spread the effects and the knowledge that's derived in dialogue. So that's great to know that we can do that. And so just before we start, just a few housekeeping items. As Eva said at the beginning, we'll use the raise hands function. If you'd like to speak, that's great. And I'll uh, take the speakers in the order that the hands are raised, but I'll give preference to people who haven't spoken before so that everybody has a chance to speak, hopefully at least once. And then also just to let you know for our next session, I thought we would get into the Euthyphro. Uh, It's a short dialogue, but I think actually the themes of the Euthyphro really kind of follow well in Critias. I, I hadn't expected that. I hadn't read Euthyphro before yesterday, actually. So I found in it actually a kind of an interesting continuation of the themes that we'll discuss here today. So without further ado, I thought I would just start the discussion today by asking everybody, why do you think that the story of Atlantis has been so so riveting for so many hundreds and thousands of years since since Plato wrote it? Uh, so we're, you know, about 2,400 years 
post-Plato. And then the story of Atlantis apparently took place it apparently took place 9,600 years before Plato. Uh, so it was a story that was related through Plato's family, through his relative Solon, who kind of wrote the constitution for Athens. And Solon, um, I think, was a few hundred years before Plato. So somebody put the, the timeline at approximately 9,600 years before Plato. So we have this story of this rather fantastic civilization that may have existed, may not have existed. Um, there's debate on that. And you know, I think it's gripped people for eons. There are people who are, you know, spend all of their lives looking for Atlantis. So the the screen image behind me is an artist's rendering of Atlantis. And it's based on the rather pre precise descriptions that Plato provides in the Critias. Plato provides uh, numbers and ratios. He talks about Atlantis being an island uh, with these concentric rings. He talks about the canals. And so this is an artist's rendering of Atlantis. But I just wanted to put the question to everybody. What do you think it is that that grips us so much with the story of Atlantis? And if we were to prove that Atlantis actually existed, why would it make a difference? I was wondering what people think. And you know, feel free to use the, the raise hands feature. I just kind of like to do a little bit of a roundtable on that question. Does Atlantis, does it, did Atlantis exist? It's a question I think that Nuri asked before we started recording what I think. All right, Anthony, hello. I have a question. Is this question about um, finding about science? The question about science in terms of uh, how we would find the existence of Atlantis or what kind of science we would apply to understand whether it existed or not. Or yeah, that's it, that one. Right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, how do we apply science to find the existence of these supposed ancient civilizations? And how do we understand science in the in the context of how these civilizations would be built? You know, for example, the screen image behind me, there would be a lot of science that would have gone into building this this ancient civilization of Atlantis. And so then the question is, did that science exist 9,600 years before Plato? It's a good question. What do others think about that? Is it possible? It's and I'm wondering probably if, possible, what I think. And I think it goes to a question of understanding of the, maybe the path that science takes over time. You know, does science take a linear path over time? In other words, we always build on previous knowledge to arrive at where we are now. So is where we are now, is that the, the pinnacle or the, the, the peak of science? Or has other science existed that has been lost over time? I don't know if anybody had a chance to go back and read the beginning of the Timaeus. The beginning of the Timaeus, Plato writes about Deucalion and these other sorts of disasters that wiped out civilization a number of times. Floods and fires, he discusses specifically at the beginning of the Timaeus. And we know, for example, that there was an ice age. And the ice age, you know, was when the planet flooded and, and froze. We know that there was a asteroid strike off Chicxulub, Mexico. I think it was around 200 million years ago, reputed to have destroyed the dinosaurs. We can see geological evidence of that. So we have the science that tells us these things happen. And we know that uh, for example, that asteroid strike off Chicxulub would have created a fireball that would have destroyed almost all of the planet. So we have these scientific 
things, but we don't necessarily know what existed before. And I think Plato talks about that right at the beginning of the Timaeus. And then he says, actually, at Timaeus 23b, after these events, you become infants all over again, as it were, completely unfamiliar with anything that was in ancient times. So he makes that statement. So we'll, uh, thanks for raising that question. And we'll go to uh, Greg and then Moshe. Greg? Okay. Did you hear me? Yes. Thank you. Uh, anyway, uh, I just want to put forward uh, my kind of view regarding your question about uh, whether it's uh, some, there's some truth or, or Atlantic existence. I, I, uh, you know, when I'm reading it, I, I certainly feel it's a fantastic story. But uh, I more feel like it's a sort of a utopian kind of a description of the, that time. It really, it's more about uh, Plato's wishes, uh, or Plato's think that uh, what could uh, civilization be in ancient time in the context of his writing regarding the, the Republic and other, other, other dialogues that he portrayed, what could, could an ideal society be? And uh, basically, he used his lineage as a salon to be the credible source to, to give us account as an add to the, to the, you know, to the believability, if you would say, but also salon uh, relying heavily on the Egyptians' account uh, of what in the past, because Egyptians, uh, being the oldest civilization, they obviously would know. But uh, if you if you if you think really in today's uh, understanding what 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 that time uh, people know about it, it's really that's still quite a a primitive uh, time in terms of the ability of people to know the past. So people and and and, and you know, uh, writing was only existing for 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 four hundred years. And before that was the oral oral lineage, and oral tradition, and uh, and uh, and uh, they might be some kind of truth, as 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 you you can say that that the you know the home homic uh, uh, poems, the stories talk about uh, the 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 fight between uh, the the Greece and the, the you know the 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 other other nations in in the east coast of Turkey. Uh, and, and that there's some, and later on, they indeed. But I think this may be have some kind of something like that. But uh, certainly, uh, the way this grab is uh, probably out of proportion. And but also, how could they know that something existed so long ago, nine thousand years? It, it want, there's no way for them to track, and we know couldn't. And also, another way to say it is, uh, given the the level of civilization they have, uh, it's it's inconceivable that. Uh, 9,000 years ago, something that would exist in isolation. And that, my view is, is probably have, you know, uh, some kind of earlier civilization like Egypt existing somewhere in Atlantic. People don't know about it, but definitely A, it's not that long, and B, maybe it was a, a lot of uh, kind of imagination regarding its, the level of civilization. Anyway, that's my two cents. Thank you, and uh, I think you raise uh, some interesting points about you know whether there's uh, allegory, whether uh, things are out of proportion, and then the very good question about how these memories are made, especially as Plato has said in Timaeus that memories are lost and we become as children. And so, how did these Egyptian <coughs> priests who told Solon this story in Timaeus? Uh, how did these Egyptian priests know these things? How was that memory preserved? And if that memory was preserved, um, you know, when we think back to what we heard in Phaedrus, 
that that dialogue about communication, if that memory is preserved, how do we know that that memory is preserved accurately? Uh, because we know that over time, um, some facts get lost, other facts get added, uh, assumptions get added in, um, all of these things that I think we naturally do over time, right? So in fact, with this story of Atlantis, there was, uh, again, referring to that Ancient Greece Declassified podcast episode that I linked in the meetup notice, um, the the writer of the book um, indicated that there was a U.S. congressman in the 1800s named Ignatius Donnelly who um, added on to the Atlantis story, embellished the Atlantis story by saying that this was a highly technologically advanced civilization. We maybe see some suggestions of that in Plato's rendition. You know, they had these fantastic walls of silver and all sorts of interesting metals. You know, how did they do that? But but that story got really embellished. And so, you know, a whole thread of thinking came along that, um, that maybe this was, you know, some sort of, you know, otherworldly advanced technological civilization. Well, again, we don't know, but this is what happens over time when, when memories get lost and confused. So it's a good question. Um, Moshe, what do you think? The, um, the story was not, uh, was given to Plato by his parents, right? Uh, it had been passed down uh, as oral history. Uh, I, I was a big fan of Joseph Campbell a number of years ago, and some of this conversation you know, piqued uh, that idea that uh, ancient man uh, in uh, the uh, um, rise of the priestly class, they had, uh, had started by observing regularities in the sky. Uh, they'd, they'd seen that the that the orbits of the planets and the movement of the stars uh, during the seasons was very orderly. And there was an idea that the gods were very orderly and that in order to be able to have um, uh, morality on earth, uh, we wanted to have, we wanted to create a macrocosm, microcosm correspondence, you know, so that things were happening down here the same way that they were happening uh, in the skies above. I, I, I'm reticent to use the word heavens. Uh, but uh, in order to be able to achieve morality, these, you know, you wanted to have this microcosmic, macrocosmic correspondence. And it would seem to me that if someone would think of, uh, of a civilization in the sky as being the, the, the idea that, that, that there would be a, that we would have a polis down here we would want that to model the polis that there was in the heavens. And the polis that there was in the heavens would have been as um, miraculous and symmetrical and ordered as anything that we could conceive. Therefore, the idea of what that would be would be uh, something described by Plato that he got from his parents with this, you know, the great circles and the canals and the Hey, I'd love to be in a place with natural hot and cold running water. So, I mean, I, I think that this is mythology uh, that has been brought down uh, through Plato uh, for the purpose of, um, well, perhaps with no purpose at all, but just to show that there we can have this macroscopic, microscopic correspondence that seems to bring order to the ancient world. Well, thank you, Moshe. And I think that's... Um you know, maybe in a sense you're touching a little bit on the idea of forms and in, in terms of this idea that there could be a model on earth 
of something that is heavenly. Um, and maybe that's a little bit of the idea of creating a particular out of a general form. And that's one of the theory, the, the themes that we discuss very much in, in Cedrus. I think, again, this, this idea that, that things here can be modeled on, on things elsewhere. Uh, I think you also talked about symmetry, you use that word. And I would just, uh, in, in the notes that I posted on the shared drive, I took a, a quote from 106b from the Critias. And let me just read this briefly before we go to Anthony and then we'll go to Joel. But let me just read this briefly. Uh, 106b, um, where Socrates says, Now I offer my prayer to that God who came to be long ago in reality, but who has just now been created in my words. My prayer is that he grant uh, the preservation of all that has been spoken properly, but that he will impose the proper penalty if we have, despite our best intentions, spoken in any discordant note here. For the musician who strikes the wrong note, the proper penalty is to bring him back into harmony. To assure then that in the future we will speak as we should concerning the origin of the gods, we pray that he will grant the best and most perfect remedy, understanding. Um, and I, I just read that because you use the word symmetry and, and there's that kind of theme of harmony in what I just wrote, uh, read. And uh, I think the idea of harmony also plays very much in, in the Phaedrus. So um, thanks for bringing that, that idea to us, you know, the, this idea of some sort of harmony with some sort of greater general form uh, of a civilization. Um, we'll go to Anthony and then to Joel. Anthony, you're muted. Um, do you not understand that they can do for, um, uh, like a human brain when they have like brain damage, right? They put like a wire inside their head and I had like the computer reader that like reached through the brain and make them think and start waking up and seeing vision and start hearing again. I don't know what that thing called that goes in the brain that makes the brain damage people to see again. Well, good point. In the future. Yeah, it's uh, and, and so the brain, you know, I guess has this ability, you know, as you said, to be damaged, but then it can also be repaired. And so maybe the idea that uh, that in sort of finding memory in in dialogue, maybe as we're doing here, uh, is maybe one way that we can do that. Um, so yeah, I, let's let's see where we can go with that. We'll go to Joel. Good morning, we'll everybody. Uh, my quick question, uh, uh, it's going to be a quick one, uh, referring to uh, whether or not if Atlantis was um, actually real or not. And I would like to uh, propose maybe that the, the overall message and authenticity uh, that Atlantis, the story of, At of Atlantis brings through Plato or other different types of mythologies lose its substance when people get into this very long, exhaustive historical account of whether or not it actually existed. Because like I know, uh, I have friends who like watch um, uh, this channel called Gaia, so to speak. I don't watch it myself, but it's very much like this kind of like anything goes where like everything from aliens to shape-shifting angels and demons and government and like throughout history and, and places like Atlantis could even be possible. So it's just very much, it's, it's like just anything goes with, uh, with, within that arena. But like, even when we look back at something like uh, Homer of Iliad or anything like through Charles Dickens, for example, uh, I think maybe the message that people like them or even Shakespeare 
uh, if we get into this whole like, well, did it actually happen? And if it's if it didn't, then it kind of loses its substance. So I think it's it it would almost be counterintuitive to get into this whole back and forth of whether or not if if it was real. Um, and that's all. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know, and I guess that's the other question that I asked at the beginning was uh, if it if we could establish that it was real, then what difference would that make? You know, what what is it that drives people to spend their life? looking for Atlantis and what is it that brings us to venues like this to discuss Atlantis? Uh, not just for a day, but this has been happening for thousands of years. So, so what is it and, and what difference would it make if we could prove that Atlantis was true? I'm interested in hearing what people have to think about that, Greg? Quick response to what you say. I mean, I think uh, the fact that Plato, Plato say, Plato said this, uh, Made the story has a lot of credibility and uh, and uh, an imagination for people because that's the earliest version of what can people say, and and he says said it beautifully, and I think uh, there's always the one drive. People always like to to think that that before human uh, you know is able to come come to this day, there was ancient time that human were were very smart and somehow connected to God. So so want human really want to be divine. And I think that's one connection to them. So that's a quick, quick comment. But uh, what I was raising the hand was for another quick response to what you said about uh, the harmony. You, you, you know, thank you for copy that paragraph there. When I first read it, I didn't really get the sense. But now it come to a, a connection. I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's the first first time to me is a Plato some kind of uh, want to point out the connection between human understanding of the words or speeches to the harmony of the sounds. Really, it's beautiful. I think the first time that I see this way that we always say that we understand something. Well, that is the harmony that bring out between the words, expressions. Uh, you know, this is the one point I got, got from today, uh, your, your writing and the, and the discussion you had, to connect harmony understanding in such a way, beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, it's a theme that uh, was definitely present in Phaedrus in terms of our communication and understanding of general forms as well as the particular forms in which we exist. Um, Eva, did you have a, a point? Yeah, I am not allowed to raise hands because, of I'm, because I'm the host, so I, I wanted to raise my real hand. So I want to empathize with this person who just came out of the war and uh, questioning democracy, seeing all the problems around himself. He discovers his ability to think and he realizes that he, people are listening to him, Plato. So I think when he, when you get that, you are around problems and your, uh, you have concerns about the country or the time you're living because of your problems. I think he used his chance to just win people's attention on the fact like there could be a way. Maybe there was a time that there was a good living for people. There was a city uh, that people lived in harmony. 
So Atlantis comes in a package. It means there was good living. I don't want to call it democracy, but like a good living for uh, for all. So I think he used the power of fiction because fiction is fiction could be future's history. So I think he used the card there and. Personally, I want to believe that Atlantis exists, and I want to believe that we can even do better than Atlantis in a way. So that's why I wanted to share. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting, yeah. I mean, it's uh, this idea of believing what we can do compared to other civilizations. I think is a is an interesting thought, and it it makes me think about our perception of time. And again, I think that that point actually that was made in the Ancient Greeks Declassified podcast episode, that the ancient Greeks did not think of time as linear as we do. Now, they thought of time as a kind of a circular function. Um, And I think if we realize that we have things to learn from ancient civilizations, things that may have been forgotten or comparisons that we can do to ancient civilizations, maybe that affects us significantly in the way that we approach things. Um, Eric, what do you think? Welcome to Plato's Pod. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the welcome. Um, uh, I appreciate what everybody's saying. Uh, I guess I just wanted to point uh, or uh, just, you know, uh, bring up the, you know, other aspects of Plato's philosophy, which might have led to him believing uh, what he was saying particularly uh, knowledge as remembrance. And also, you know, the, the, the question of, uh, you know, whether it's fact or fiction, I don't know if it really, I don't know if that's how Plato was thinking about it. I don't know if he uh, was kind of going about kind of coming up with this vision, this utopic vision, kind of like what Greg was saying in that way, that this is like, a, this is an aspiration, more like perhaps, um, you know, yeah, he had, you know, uh, he had heard stories passed down uh, from his parents and others, um, other relations. And he took those stories and through what he believed to be the, you know, the, the theory of remembering uh, or, you know, uh, knowledge as remembering uh, or recollection and uh, that coupled with i don't know something like something like that he could conceive of this model as being something like a like a divine inspiration that is informed by his understanding of the eternal forms being kind of like if he could intuit the perfection and the harmony and the beauty of these forms then they inform this vision that he had of like an ideal human society or civilization and it must be real for the reasons that his like for the reasons that his philosophy tells him that uh you know he's remembering he's divinely inspired these are he's not making these ideas these notions of harmony or beauty up but uh he's receiving them almost or remembering them those two things together and uh versus that in contrast to you know, uh, thinking of it like this is an aspirational model or anything that he might have actually believed uh, in that sense. Thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, you know, you, you talk about knowledge is recollection, and that's the 
one of the great lines in the Mino, which we discussed, um, and this continual presentation that, that Plato does as the, the soul is that which remembers. Uh, and again, you know, not just in Mino, where he says specifically knowledge is recollection, or Socrates says knowledge is recollection, but again in Phaedrus, uh, where that, that story of uh, Thoth um, that we, we looked at uh, a few weeks ago, um, this idea that the soul is constantly able to remember. And so you spoke, Eric, about intuiting. And so maybe that's kind of like the imaginative function. Um, and maybe that's a great power of the, the knowledge that we have is that it can lead to imagination. Um, and certainly the story of Atlantis it fi has fired the imagination for thousands of years. Uh, JK, what do you think? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I agree with that. Um, what Eric just said about the forms and that the idea of uh, going back, you know, in time to a, to a motto, maybe a motto of a perfect society, you know, um, you know, uh, Plato, is going back, you know, using relying on Atlantis maybe as a model for a perfect society, and trying to emulate that to uh, to deal with the uh, you know uh, the problems in the present, and how to uh, you know establish a, a more perfect society in the in the, in the present and the, for the future. And then you see that in Confucius in China, Confucius, the famous uh, Chinese philosopher also uh, was uh, hearkening back to, you know, a, a civilization, a society, you know, in the past as uh, relying on that as a model to, um, to develop his, um, you know, uh, philosophy and, and how we should live and, and so forth. So that's, uh, you know, what Plato's doing is consistent with his idea of forms you know that is uh, it is a recollection of of a uh, of something that uh, that's in our you know that's in the past and uh, in modern day terms uh, Jung's uh, Jung's psychology of the uh, unconscious you know is is uh, is uh, is uh, you know premise on these uh, these uh, collective forms that we have that perhaps you know. Um, and then, and then we, we, according to him, we rely on these forms, these archetypes and so forth, you know, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to understand our, our, you know, psychological problems, our relationships with society and, and how to, uh, and so they're like, you know, they're like models for, for um, appropriate behavior and, uh, and, and so forth and how we, uh, and how we can uh, deal with some of the, problems that we have, you know, psychologically and, and uh, politically and social, socially. So, yeah, so maybe Atlantis is this kind of idea of uh, a past. So like in, in, uh, in, uh, in today, you know, uh, modern philosophers are going back to, uh, to the pre-Socratics as a, as a model of, of uh, you know, of, uh, a model of what is, uh, you know, what is virtue and what is, uh, you know, um, you know how to establish a more perfect society. You know, Heidegger going back to Heraclitus and uh, and uh, these French philosophers, Derrida. You know, uh, critiquing all the all the um, errors that were committed. You know, uh, since 
since Plato and going back to uh, the pre-Socratics and so forth. So maybe that, that there's, there's something like that going on here. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And the interesting uh, reference to a number of other philosophers, including Confucius, I, I think this idea, again, of a model uh, and tying that into the idea of the forms and the forms themselves were kind of held to be ideas or ideals. And this is how we maybe model things is based on these kind of ideals or templates. Um, and, you know, may go, you know, kind of to, uh, again, to this idea that Eric was talking about as knowledge being recollection, you know, what we're recalling are these ideas maybe and, and building on them. And it, it's worth reminding people, um, you know, that the both Timaeus and Critias, so Timaeus and Critias were successive dialogues. One picks up, uh, Critias picks up after Timaeus, but both pick up after um, the, the day before these dialogues happened, uh, Socrates and the group had finished discussing the content of what's in the Republic, you know, that great political work of Plato's, which kind of provides a model uh, for society, uh, or does it provide an accurate model for society? And actually, I'm just reminded, again, at the beginning of Timaeus, uh, where Socrates actually criticizes what happened in, in their discussion about the Republic. And, and this is a theme that I, I want to pick up when we get on, when, when we get into the Republic, I want to pick up on this theme. But uh, at Timaeus uh, 19, 19b, uh, Socrates is criticizing the model that they base their republic on uh, by saying that, uh, you know, he's, it's as if he was looking at a painting, he says. Um, and one finds himself longing to look at these objects in motion or engaged in some struggle or conflict that seems to show off their distinctive physical qualities. I feel the same thing about the city we've we've described. He's talking about the Republic here. I'd love to listen to someone give a speech depicting our city in a contest with other cities competing for those prizes that cities typically compete for. I'd love to see our city distinguish itself in a way in the way it goes to war and the way it pursues the war. So in other words, he's saying he actually uses the the, the term two-dimensional. They created a two-dimensional structure in in the Republic. That was not a sufficient model, maybe, is what he's saying at Timaeus. 19b for the society that they talked about in the Republic, because you need to expand that two-dimensional model into three dimensions to see how it moves about, because, you know, the the, the people are the movers. Uh, so I think that's a, it's an important point, uh, what you just said about, about modeling, JK, and, uh, you know, basing societies on this. And we can think about that in, in terms of Atlantis. Um, Moshe, your thoughts? Yeah, the idea of um, a perfect society uh, interests me. Um, I, I think, I mean, my reading of the Republic is is that it is describing a um, um, a, a system of governance where um, it's it, it can be read as a as as political philosophy, where how we would have a well ordered society, how we how society would would work and would flourish, and 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 we could have. Uh, good citizens in a good state. And it seems to me that if, if you can describe having good citizens in a good state, wouldn't it be great if we could have some good real estate and landscape architecture uh, for our perfect society to live in? 
And so that would be Atlantis. Indeed. Yeah, it's insert uh, me in this uh, artist's rendition on the, uh, the my screen background. Uh, Atlantis was, by all accounts, a beautiful uh, landscaping, you know, physical rendering of this model. That this model was kind of maybe like a form, an ideal, and they took this ideal and and rendered it in in physics. Uh, Jane, what do you think? Uh, hi, everybody. Um, I really, I just wanted to, I guess, uh, add a small remark to what Moshe was saying, because when I was looking at the photo, uh, not the photo, uh, at, the, at, the, at the pictures, images of Atlantis that we can find online, um, what I was thinking about is that uh, Plato's, um, Plato's Republic has a, so I guess it could be called a caste system that is divided into three. And it's, it's kind of interesting that Atlantis has sort of, it has the center and two rings around it. Um, I, 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 if, if talking about like the meaning of Atlantis and what it, whether it exists or not, I think that it, it carries great symbolic meaning as a, as a model, as a sort of perfect shadow of a platonic idea or form. And it would even seem to me at some point that whether or not it actually physically existed would be not as important to Plato as the fact that it is a more or less ideal reflection of what a form or idea of a society would look like. And so it, in a sense to Plato, it would be more real than an actual Atlantis actually existing in reality. And the other thing that I like about Atlantis is it's sort of, it is a way of humbling the modern person, like entertaining this idea that it could have existed. And just because it seems unimaginable or unreal, it, it doesn't mean that it couldn't have existed. Maybe there are things that we have not discovered about the world, about ourselves, about our history. And so it, it well, at least it made me think that uh, it's it's a good exercise to humble ourselves and to realize that even if we do know a lot compared to what sort of the the, the entire world encompasses is just a very very small frag like fragment of it. And perhaps Atlantis is a sort of this is probably a very fantastic idea, uh, but I, I've also thought of it as Atlantis being sort of this alternative uh, road that humanity could have taken again and like come up to Atlantis again. So sort of we're living an alternative uh, road of progress, of human progress uh, in comparison to Atlantis. That's all I wanted to add, thank you. Thank you actually. And, and uh, that actually leads into Jane, I think a reading that we could do. And Eva, if you, would, um, if you wouldn't mind sharing the screen and it's the second page Eva, that um, I wanted to do that reading number one. Um, but just before we do that, while we'll, we'll, um, Eva's setting up the screen, uh, I wanted to talk about what Jane just said, because I think uh, this idea, Jane used the word humbling. And I'm wondering if, uh, if Plato uh, wanted to kind of put that sense of humility in us, or let us think about that sense of humility. Um, and I wanted to be a little bit more specific about 
you know, this idea of what would it mean to us if we discovered that Atlantis was true, that it was a true story. You know, for example, that the screen image behind me, an artist rendering of Atlantis, um, that it was true. What would that do? Um, and thinking about, you know, what was said earlier about time, you know, maybe we approach time as being a linear thing and we think that, that we are, uh, we are the pinnacle or the, the, the peak of knowledge in time. What if time isn't that way? What if time is actually circular? What would that do to our thinking about ourselves? And I think Jane hit the, the nail on the head with the word humbling, maybe that, uh, that we would realize that we have more things that we need to learn, perhaps. So that, that's a thought that I wanted to, to pick up on an echo from what Jane used in, in the word humbling and, and the idea that Atlantis might be an alternative uh, vision of, uh, of what we could achieve. So on the second page, Eva, there's a reading um, that starts uh, at 120E and goes to 121B. And I'm wondering if I could have any volunteers to read just these two paragraphs for us, if anybody would be interested in volunteering for this, or I can read it if, uh, well, let me, let me read it then. And uh, so this is 120E to 121B. And in this, Plato says, for many generations, and as long as enough of their divine nature survived, they were obedient unto their laws, and they were well disposed to the divinity they were akin to. So he's talking about the Atlanteans. They possessed conceptions that were true and entirely lofty. And in their attitude to the disasters and chance events that constantly befall men, and in their relations with one another, they exhibited a combination of mildness and prudence, because, except for virtue, they held all else in disdain and thought their present good fortune of no consequence. They bore their vast wealth of gold and other possessions without difficulty, treating them as if they were a burden. They did not become intoxicated with the luxury of the life their wealth made possible. They did not lose their self-control and slip into decline. But in their sober judgment, they could see distinctly that even their very wealth increased with their amity and its companion virtue. But they saw that both wealth and concord decline as possessions become pursued and honored, and virtue perishes with them as well. So in this first paragraph, he's talking, really, he's described, I think, what's kind of a nirvana or utopia was a word that somebody had used earlier. Uh, but there's a warning in this last sentence. Uh, but they saw that both wealth and concord, concord being another word for harmony, decline as possessions become pursued and honored. So here really talking about the way materialism sort of interferes with our, with our harmony, with, with the metaphysical, with, with that which is not material. And virtue perishes with them as well. So in the second paragraph, now because, there, because these were their thoughts and because of the divine nature that survived in them, they prospered greatly as we have already related. But when the divine portion in them began to grow faint, as it was often blended with great quantities of mortality, and as their human nature gradually gained ascendancy, at that moment in their inability to bear their great good fortune, they became disordered. To whoever had eyes to see, they appeared hideous, since they were losing the finest of what were once their most treasured possessions. But to those who were blind to the true way of life oriented to, ha to happiness, it was at this time that they gave the semblance of being supremely beauteous and blessed. 
yet inwardly they were filled with an unjust lust for possessions and power. And speaking of power, I mean, this, these two paragraphs really struck me quite powerfully. Um, I don't know I, I, whether it's just me, but I, I see uh, parallels between what's being described here for Atlantis and maybe how modern society has, has developed uh, in terms of uh, perhaps a materialist approach. Um, you know, does virtue perish with materialism? Um, and then also this question of appearance in the, in the second par paragraph, those who see their, their, their true nature becoming, uh, distorted by materialism, see them as ugly, but others who can't look through that true nature, see them as beautiful. And maybe that's one of the things that we are at risk of if we follow that path that the Atlanteans took and become materialist. Eric, what do you think? Yeah, I definitely agree with you that these two paragraphs are powerful. And I think that last, that second to last sentence uh, in the second paragraph uh, is one of the most, uh, you know, important and tremendous even uh, declarations in this dialogue. And uh, so I just, uh, you know, as much as this dialogue, like it's almost more of a depiction than a philosophy, but the big philosophical question that it poses I think one of them at least is uh, like, what is it? What is this mortal or human uh, kind of entrance into the, into, you know, this conception that uh, corrupts? Like, it, this isn't developed in this dialogue, it's developed elsewhere, but it's kind of one of the big questions that, uh, that the Critias or whatever uh, leaves left me with. Um, and I think that. Uh, that second to last sentence uh, in the second paragraph there is uh, tremendous as far as like the, the, the philosophical virtue, I guess, that it's, mm. that it has reached. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And that second to last sentence that you're referring to again, just to read it though, to whoever had eyes to see, they appeared hideous since they were losing the finest of what were once their most treasured, treasured possessions. And then the other one, but to those who were blind to the true way of life oriented to happiness, it was at this time that they gave the semblance of being supremely beauteous and blessed that, mm -hmm. uh, that you could be so mistaken, I guess. Yeah, and, and elsewhere, and we've got another reading um, where uh, in the Critias where Plato talks about art again, you know, picking up on a theme again that he explored in... Um, in Phaedrus and you know the effect of art on us and he picks up on this in the Critias so we've got a reading on that um, but the question is how do we depict these things so here we're seeing the potential of a depiction of the Atlanteans as good and beautiful and another potential of depicting the Atlanteans as ugly for what they had become and we have to be careful at understanding the way we approach and understand these depictions, the, these, these, these forms that we've, we've generated uh, based on these ideals. Thank you. Moshe? Well, this is certainly a rich paragraph, isn't it? Um, going back to my idea of the microcosmic, macrocosmic correspondence, it seems to me here that we're talking about two different things maybe four different things. We've got a divine nature and we've got a human nature. 
And the divine nature is pure and utopian and perfect. And the human nature is, um, is free and chaotic and subject to decay, uh, a, a world of becoming. And as the two worlds were together uh, in the early days of Atlantis, um, everything was working fine. But then in the later days, as the human nature, the nature of decay and freedom started to take ascendancy, virtue was lost and the connection between the divine and the human was, was separated. And the um, probably as a result of that, Atlantis ceased to exist as a, a physical or a, or a real thing. Thank you. The, and, you know, I think you use words that remind me of, um, uh, again, of Timaeus 28a, my, my favorite pass, well, among my favorite passages in Timaeus, that distinction between the realm that uh, always is and never becomes and the realm that is always becoming but never is. And those two, that fundamental distinction in the construction of the universe that Plato presents in, in Timaeus uh, I think is one that just resonated in, in what you just said. Um, and so I put the question out there, you know, does everyone think that um, we are necessarily distinct from God or from a greater source, or are we part of a greater source? Um, and, you know, maybe that's fundamentally the way we think about ourselves and we think about the progression of time as well. Um, you know, there's this, uh, there's these words in here um, in the second paragraph. Um, it's in the second sentence in the second paragraph. But when the divine portion in them began to grow faint, as it was often blended with great quantities of mortality, and as their human nature gradually gained ascendancy, at that moment in their inability to bear the great good fortune, they became disordered. And so it's this idea that we've got sort of innate order built into us, but then we can fall into disorder uh, when we lose that connection with, with the order that's innately built into us. Um, I thought that was a very powerful expression actually there, um, you know, and this, this idea maybe that the, this constant idea that Plato's presenting in Phaedo, um, in, in, again in Mino, uh, you know, that the soul is a derivative of God. And so as a derivative, it would necessarily be part of God. Um, so, um, so yeah, um, we'll take Greg and then JK and then Moshe again. Greg? Okay, I'm mute. Yeah. There you, there you go. Uh, yeah, I, I response to, uh, to Moshe, as I said, that, you know, the, the divine connection versus the human nature, it seems that, that uh, Plato, in his mind, is very, Firm about uh, the bad and bad human nature. Human nature are not not divine, and uh, and he's point out that as a, as a, the human nature gains strength, uh, they lose their divine portion. But but uh, he didn't seem to to point out how can we um, gain the divine nature. I mean, are we born with the divine nature, or, or we, it has to be gained throughout his dialogue? So far, I have not seen that. But here, he clearly, you know confirms his belief that human nature is bad. I mean, if we let it control, we lose our divine uh, quality. And, 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 and that feel, I feel this is a question to me. But I'd like to ask a question to, uh, to Eric, to ask elaborate. You point out the last second sentence to be, 
to be most important to you. And I see this indeed conveys a lot of a meaning. But uh, to me, I, I couldn't understand well, like uh, it seems to be as a paradoxical. On the one hand, uh, someone is blind to the truth, means blind to the truth. But on the other hand, that the, the, the someone uh, will have uh, the supreme uh, beauties and blessed. Uh, it, it seems to be contradictory to me. Could could Eric elaborate on that? Well, thank you, Eric. Did you want to jump in before we go to JK? Sure. Uh, yes. I mean, that's, I think, what the kind of, yeah, the paradox, I guess, you know, the difference between uh, appearance and truth. And really, I mean, this is something that had, that in our time would perhaps be more troubling to answer than in Plato's time. But of course, Plato, uh, you know, uh, received opposition, I'm sure too, but uh, um, that he was convinced. I mean, this is like, this is a big philosophical idea that, uh, uh, that the appearance is incorrect, that what you see is not, I mean, Plato's formulation is that what you see is a corruption of what was, of, of being, of the eternal forms. And um, I mean, that, I, yeah, I, okay. So I, I, I very much appreciated, uh, I think it was Jane or something uh, said that, uh, um, you know, that, that the, uh, the conception of Atlantis kind of leads to a humility or humbling. Um, that you, you know, the, the, the one of the, questions posed by this, by this conception, this fantastic conception is I can perhaps, uh, I can conceive this. Why isn't, why isn't it the case? Like, why isn't this the way that things are? And uh, the humility and the humbling of kind of comparing and contrasting where we are to what could be very well the ideal, like, like, like how far are we away from the best of our conceptions? And uh, then looking around and and asking that question again and again, perhaps, and uh, there the there the there the distinction grows between what between the ideal and the appearance. Yeah, so it, it becomes an ethical question as much as a um, metaphysical question. I don't know, not to bring those terms up, but. That's the best I can do. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Eric. And, and actually, you know what? I think we'll have a chance to pursue that idea when we read 107B to 107D. Um, and I like the words that you used, what you see is a corruption of what was. And I think that's maybe the problem of creating a model and then, um, you know, designing your physics on that model without fully understanding the model. Um, so that was a powerful, I, I found that a powerful turn of words. Um, we'll go to Moshe and then JK and then Jane. Moshe? Um, on the last slide, uh, if you could go back to that. Well, you don't have to go back to that. But this is a story of uh, this 9,000 years ago, okay? Uh, 9,000 years before Plato. I think one of the things... I mean, one of the things that I see out of the last paragraph is a distinction uh, is, uh, I, I will call it a, a, a growth that we see in Plato from the two-part nature of the soul, divine and human, 
to the three-part nature of the soul, which is described in the Phaedrus with the allegory of the, of the chariot. Because what's missing in this is reason. We've got the good nature, we've got the divine nature, but we don't have anything to bring them together. Reason is missing. And I, I take that as a very interesting, perhaps not profound observation that, that when we see later in Plato, the, develop, the, the importance of reason in, uh, in, in um, uh, civil governance, uh, something is added that brings a stability to, uh, to human life that this particular myth is lacking. That was the perfect setup, Moshe, for reading 107b to 107d. Uh, I think, you know, that, that idea that you just said about reason and, and having a reasoned account. And, and again, to tie that back to 20, Timaeus 28a, where, um, where Plato says that to understand the realm that always is and never becomes, you have to do that understanding with a reasoned account. You can't apply your senses to it because it has no physical existence. You can only understand with your senses that which has physical existence, but not that which always is and never becomes. Uh, and so I think I, I very much like what you just said in terms of tying that into what Plato goes on to say at 107b to 107b. Um, we'll go to JK and then Jane and Joel. JK? The question is, um, you know, how did they arrive at the... Um at that divine nature in the first place without reason. And, and you, you know, so uh, that means that they, they, must have, they must have used, they must have relied on some understanding and some reasonable understanding to have arrived at that uh, divine nature. Now, 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 now you have to ask, what is that divine nature and how did it get corrupted? And, uh, if you uh, if you posit a divine nature as something that is and never becomes, right? Then was it maybe because they 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 most mistook that that uh, that isness of divine nature as something that would never change, right? And in the beginning, they they seem to accept uh, you know that. Uh, the you know this kind of uh, you know the this change and the, the immortality of their of their their state of um, of uh, in their in their uh, possession of uh, uh, luxuries and so forth. They were not intoxicated by their luxuries in life and wealth. So, and they they accepted the change, the loss of that as they as they grew old and died. But the, uh, I, I think the mistake was to assume that uh, that those uh, luxuries and the wealth would stay with them, right? They they eventually became intoxicated and became uh, addicted to to those possessions, as if you know uh, they would never, you know, they they. They wouldn't let go. They would. They they didn't want to let go of them. They 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 didn't want to want to accept the change. So I I think it's a kind of like um, not being able to accept the change is is what uh, you know uh, corrupted their this divine nature 
the divine nature is is this idea of uh, of being able to um, accept the change, their mortality, and to let go of what they had. And so it's this. I think it's a misconception of what the, what being and being is, being and becoming is. They be, they they. I think they became attached to to the idea of being. And wanted the things to remain the same, you know. Instead of uh, you know, because without without that the idea of becoming, without the idea of change, there's no creativity, there's no novelty anymore, you know. And so I think that's how they lost their virtue and and became uh, divine, uh, you know, virtue and, and became corrupted, or you know, or or the other way around. But anyway, so uh, yeah, I, I think it comes back to the idea of uh, what is divine and the and um, and the uh, this paradox of being and becoming. You know, can you have being without without becoming? Really so, like, yeah, I really like the way you put that, J.K. Really like the way that that distinction between being and becoming. Um, you know, and the idea that that. Uh, um, you know, we're endowed with this ability to vary our existence. We're endowed with this ability to be creative and not always static. And I think that goes maybe to what Eric was saying earlier about, uh, uh, you know, being able to intuit, being able to imagine. Is, is that what you're thinking about in terms of being and becoming that distinction? Right, because... Uh... They they, uh, they they couldn't accept the the, the notion of difference, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, you know, it's the difference that makes you know uh, makes life you know um, uh, what uh, uh, precious you know, and not be attached to what is actual, and always you know be able to have that potential to to you know. Uh, to grow and to be reborn, and 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 I think that's what the uh, the idea of divine, perhaps, uh, means. You know, a divine nature is to have that kind of uh, creative spirit. Yeah, the the word potential that you just use, I think, is an important one in terms of perhaps understanding the capacity of the divine and. And maybe this idea that that potential is in all of us, but we can't sort of become wedded to the material because that reduces our potential. Um, I, I think you put that very powerfully, and you, you said a number of very interesting things that you know that they became attached to the idea of being without realizing that which they could become. Uh, and maybe there's a lesson for us in that today uh, that that we become fixed. We, we become fixated on these uh, on these conceptions that may or may not be accurate renderings of what is actually divine. I would just, um, before we go on to, um, to Jane and then Joel, I just would want to just very briefly read at 120, 120A and B in Critias, um, the, the idea that the laws were set in stone, and, and unfortunately, this is not in in one of the slides. But it, this is just in the. Uh, um, I didn't have a chance to put this one on the slides, but at, at one twenty a and b, it's a very short thing. They they talked about this idea of the divine laws being set in stone for the citizens of Atlantis, 
um, and they would uh, draw the blood from a mixing bowl into gold uh, pouring vessels, pouring the blood over the fire, they would take an oath to render justice according to the laws inscribed on the stele and to punish anyone who had violated these laws since they last met. So this was an annual ritual that they went through and the laws were written down on stone. Like it doesn't say who wrote them down on stone. The stone was ascribed to the god Poseidon, but you know, was that whoever did the inscription, did they understand what Poseidon had described? And was Poseidon the top god? Well, no, at the end we learned that Zeus was the top god. So did Poseidon, did Poseidon um, provide an accurate account to whoever did the inscription? And so they built the society around whatever was inscribed on the stone, um, and they punished people who didn't adhere to it. Um, and so that's kind of where ideas become fixed. And maybe they departed from the realm of, of becoming and they got stuck in the realm of being according to some maybe false notion. Um, so I just wanted to read that brief uh, section um, before we go on to Jane. Jane, what are your thoughts? Uh, there's so much I wanted to say there's because there's way too too many ideas going on right now. Um, and James, you just took it to the next step with that. I, I didn't pay attention to that, to that detail in the dialogue, but this kind of takes it to the next level. I was going to say that I can't really and this is this is not exactly uh, like my sort of ideas. This is the way that I interpret each and every dialogue based on what I've read before on Plato or about Plato. Um, and the way that I see it is that uh, being and becoming the Atlantis came into non-being, so disappeared, not because it was being, but because it, it entered into the stages of becoming. Whatever is becoming, it, it degrades and decays and disappears with time. So the way that I saw it is that Atlantis initially, the rulers, they were a part of being. And as they gain more and more of humanness in them, of mortality, they began, began like anything that is from the becoming to decay and disappear. So to me, it was the other way around that to in order to preserve Atlantis, they should have preserved the being, the, the eternal part of them. And I think, and this, I guess, sort of touches upon what James, you just mentioned that there's this important uh, factor of understanding whether the idea that you have in your hands, is it is it idea that is being or is it an idea that is becoming? Because if we take an idea that we think is part of the eternal, is part of the being, and, and we give it that status of, of of uh, non-movement and internalness, and we try to to encapsulate everything within this idea, then that idea is going to degenerate and decay and destroy whatever was put inside of it because it is part of becoming. So something that is uh, something that is changing but will inevitably disappear or get destroyed and so on. Um, regarding the soul, the way that I understood the structure of the soul of the human based on the Timaeus, as there, there is a third element that does tie the sort of the reason or the intellect to the body, and that is the soul. Um, in, the, it, in terms of universal structure, um, Plato, I believe, called it the essence. So you have the eternal, 
and you have the becoming and it's tied together with the essence. And when we're looking at the individual or the human, that is the soul that helps the intellect or reason to be tied down to the, the body, the corporal. And okay, I'll try to be short. Uh, the last thing that I wanted to, oh, I really liked the, the, the extract that we looked at a little earlier. I thought it was one of the best parts of the dialogue. And whenever I read Plato's dialogues, I, why I like them so much is each and every one of them has these pieces, these small extracts that make me feel more sane. And this is definitely one of those extracts. Um, I, I don't know. It, 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 really, it really made a lot of the puzzle pieces fit in my mind about, about the world and about a lot of the things that I was experiencing. And I especially like to the end of it about what is beauty? And I believe um, Eric mentioned this, the, the words aesthetics and ethics. That was actually what I was thinking about too. I mean, in modern society, if we look at like philosophical discussions, we don't know what is what, who gets to decide what is ethically correct or what is um, aesthetically correct. And this dialogue, I was, I was so stunned by it. So there are people who could look at something which is actually sort of decay and destruction and see see beauty and think that it is a blessing and so on. But those people can be blind. Who gets to decide? How do we know that? How do we know who's actually seeing or who's actually being blind? Because the person who sees, he sees something hideous. But the person who sees in that hideous something beautiful, they're going to say, well, something's wrong with you. You should be more optimistic, for example. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm gonna leave it at that because I could I could say a lot more, but this 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 piece of the dialogue, it was just absolutely beautiful. And I think a separate book could be written about that piece of dialogue. Yes, thank you. Indeed, thank you, Jane. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's um you know, there, there's so many things that we could explore with just even one sentence that Plato writes, you know, and that that's what fascinates me about Plato and what drives me to host these sessions with with Eva. I mean, I, it's just I, I learn something every single time. And each time I read it, I learn something new. And each time it's discussed, I learn something new. And so, I mean, one of the things, I mean, you touched on so many important points, Jane, and you know, a number of them tied on, on uh, I think it was what JK said in terms of, uh, you know, difference makes life precious. Um, and, you know, again, thinking back to Timaeus, uh, the idea that uh, in this creation of the universe, he talked about the mixing of the same and the different, and, and that it's a difficult mixture. And then in Phaedrus, he presents the idea of the soul being the charioteer. The, the soul's got two horses pulling in off, opposite directions, and it's like the charioteer is tying those two horses together. And uh, how does it tie the horses together? Well, it ties the horses together with a reasoned account. Um, it, um, it ties the, the horses together by, uh, by trying to de determine what's believable. And, and, you know, that's what we do, I think, in, in dialogue. Um, so we'll go to Joel. And while we're doing that, Eva, if you wouldn't mind preparing the reading on the third page, it's labeled number two. Um, we'll go and read that because I, it talks very much about this idea of what we actually believe. Um, but we'll go to Joel. Hey guys, so I have to leave shortly.
But before I do, uh, that, this has been absolutely incredible. And Jane, that was, you gave me a lot of food for thought. Um, before I go though, just for fun, I'd like to play the antagonist here. And I would like to tackle what exactly, what exactly does the word divine mean per se? Because the impression I get is whenever you use anything and describe it uh, as divine, I think of something that is like supernatural or perfect or somehow transcends logic and reason. And I find, even though I recognize the utility of um, equating the soul or intellect to something that can relate to whatever is divine, I feel like there's also, um, even though it's useful, there's also it can also be dangerous too because to, uh, because it's easy to um, describe but not give a complete definition of perfection in terms of like okay what is perfection what is divine and all you can really do is just uh, describe it for what it's not so to speak right it's like well it's without error it's without limitations but like what well, what is it specifically and you can only describe it in negative terms so to speak so i feel like there's there's also a risk or or towing the line a danger when we're trying to describe what is somehow eternal or transcendent in 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 like sort of an anthropomorphic uh uh, perspective of like, oh, this is something that is somehow related to my mind or our minds or uh, something that we could um, strive to or in some way obtain, if you will. Maybe you can't, but like, I think, I think also it, it could be dangerous when we're trying to describe it and give it like sort of our desires, our purpose, our needs, our wants and motions, so to speak. Because at some point, as we all know, throughout history, somebody's going to come across and be like, aha, like I've, I figured it out. I got it. This is divine. And it could be completely used in the opposite direction. And it turns into chaos and insanity and just flat out ignorance. So I think, uh, I think, yeah, that it could I could see the utility, it's useful, but uh, I don't really know what the word divine means at the end of the day. It's just, it's very, this, this kind of spooky abstract word that it's like, it's almost impossible to really wrap your head around. That was powerful, Joel. I, I, you know, when you said, we can only describe the divine by what it is not, um, that appeared to me as a particularly powerful piece of logic that, uh, you know, we could explore here. I, I you know, what do people think about that? And, and you know, maybe it relates to why Plato ended this dialogue the way that he did. And I want to discuss that before we finish. So we've got another half hour roughly. And I want to get to that uh, because, you know, it's said that this dialogue is, quote, unfinished because it ends by saying, and Zeus said dot, 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 and then that's it, right? And so is is that, does that relate to what you just said, Joel? Is that is that where we have to stop trying to define the divine because we can only define the divine by what it's not? Um, James, incredibly I, powerful thought. Just, yeah, Eva, I, and then we'll we'll go to Moshe and JK. Eva, this was great timing, Joel, because when you say divine, and we are talking, we hear Plato talking about a system, group of people trying to find the right way of living. Speaking of divine, I think he has uh, other parts, other times that he is talking about the self and the self-responsibility. So, yeah, it's okay to see the group of people, countries or cultures like uh, 
people were born in their own groups, clans, or whatever they were, but we are all individuals. And it will be missing if we don't speak about the self and what is happening with the self. Can the community, country, or the group be and stay, exist as virtues if people are not virtuous? And the fact that we are talking about the concept of time, history, current, and uh, the past, so things will be shifting just like the communities or lifestyles of or group of people, a person is growing and a person is uh, changing too. I think what he is, or I, what I, how I would, I enjoy hearing Plato is he is talking about both the community, my group and my own personal uh, responsibilities as a human being because I want to believe like we are all responsible individuals as Plato or anyone else here on the screen on our with ourselves on uh, our homes with our computers. So just wanted to remark the personal understanding of the virtue and the divine. Joel, thank you. Thank you both. It's uh... The um, and you know again just to remind uh, everyone of what we just read in that section, where where Plato talks about the divine portion in us, and so he's saying that there's there's a bit of the divine in each of us, and then I think what we just heard from Evan Joel is that the divine is also in all of us, so it's in each, but it's in all, kind of like this idea of the one and the many, um, you know, which is obviously one of the big subjects of Parmenides, which we will get to. Um, so it's that powerful idea. And, and that's why I asked earlier, you know, what do people think about this idea? Are we, are we separate and apart from God or are we part of God? Um, you know, so I, th I think that's maybe fundamentally inherent in this whole discussion. Um, before we go to the reading, we'll go to Moshe and then JK. Uh, okay. I want to, um, uh... I, I want to make the distinction between um, how we as 21st century people uh, use terms like divine and God and the way Plato used them. And we have uh, ample evidence for how Plato used them in, you know, the dialogues that he wrote. Okay. And um, uh, James, you've brought up a, a number of times about memory and you know how we how we know things, and in the in the Phaedrus uh, around one around two forty eight, he's uh, talking about how the uh, the souls, which are ultimately going to go into the human body, um, um, uh, they're they're longing for the upper world, and they all follow, but not uh, being strong enough, they are carried around uh, the surface, plunging and. And, and treading on one another, each striving to be first, and they're just they're clawing with perspiration to get closer to the closer and closer to the forms. And it's important to understand that that's the kind of knowledge that that we want is this knowledge of the forms, the permanent, the beautiful, the unchangeable. 
And it says uh, in 249, I don't have the A, B, C, or D, but it says, um, clinging in recollection to those things in which God abides, clinging to the forms in which God abides, he's living there, and in beholding which he is what he is. So God is only God because he's closest to the forms. So the, there's no divinity here, like uh, there's no sort of anthropomorphic divinity. There's no, um, uh, uh, there's certainly no uh, theistic uh, divinity. Divinity is a kind of knowledge that we have when we can become close to reality, when we can become close to the forms. And then we wanna, that's important to know so that we know what Plato is saying. The other thing is, as 21st century people, we might look back on that and say, well, that's just a bunch of hooey. You know, there are no forms. You know, we can be critical of it. We can say whatever we want. But I think it's important that we, we, we do two things. We, first, we have to understand what Plato says. And then we want to address the question of whether what Plato says is true or false or if there's some, some nuance to it. Thank you. And, and in, in the course of what we do, I think a reasoned account is required. And that's our capacity to create a reasoned account in discussions like this. And so you um, raised a very important point, I think, about the nature of divine. And maybe it goes to this distinction uh, of whether you believe that there is a personal God in other words, a God that will intercede on your individual behalf, or whether God is more like, uh, I've heard the term used, Spinoza's God, uh, you know, the kind of God that Spinoza or Einstein believed in, the God that created the initial conditions for everything else to flourish, um, that, that isn't an individual God, but it's, an, it's a God for, for all. And so I think that's, a, that's an important distinction to keep in mind, I think, as we we explore these concepts and this idea of the soul as being that single point that, you know, judges always that, uh, that ratio between same and different to try to find that one single line uh, that connects to that, you know, singularity of God. Um, so those were really fascinating points and that really does lead into that reading. So Eva, if you wouldn't mind putting that on the screen, um, and again, I would ask, would we have a volunteer? This is just uh, two relatively short paragraphs. If anybody would volunteer to read this, or I can read it again if... Um... I guess you're reading it, James, thank you. <laughs> I'm reading it. All right, I don't mind. This is from 107B to 107D. And so this relates to, uh, you know, again, that idea of, uh, you know, what is divine and how do we describe that which is divine? So it's two paragraphs, the first of which, it is easier, Timaeus, for someone to give the impression that he is a successful speaker when he speaks of gods to an audience of mortals. The audience's lack of experience and sheer ignorance concerning a subject they can never know for certain provide the would-be speaker with great eloquence. We know how we stand when it comes to our knowledge of the gods. To make my meaning plainer, let me ask you to follow me in this illustration. It is inevitable, I suppose, that everything we have all said is a kind of representation and attempted likeness. Let us consider the graphic art of the painter that has as its object the bodies of both gods and men, and the relative ease and difficulty 
involved in the painter's convincing his viewers that he has adequately rep represented the objects of his art. We will first observe, we will observe first that we are satisf satisfied if an artist is able to represent, even to some small extent, the earth and mountains and rivers and forests and all of heaven and all the bodies that exist and move within it and render their likeness. And next, that since we have no precise knowledge of such things, we do not examine these paintings too closely or find fault with them, but we are content to accept an art of suggestion and illusion for such things, as vague and deceptive as this art is. But when a painter attempts to create a likeness of our bodies, we are quick to spot any defect. And because of our familiarity and lifelong knowledge, we provide we prove harsh critics of the painter who does not fully reproduce every detail. We must view the case of speeches as precisely the same. We embrace what is said about the heavens and things divine with enthusiasm, even when what is said is quite implausible, but we are nice critics of what is said of mortals and human beings. Um, so again, I, I found this to be a particularly powerful section that relates very much to what we discussed in Phaedrus and to the idea of, you know, if there is a form of divine, uh, how do we depict that form? Who has knowledge? Who has sufficient knowledge to depict that form of, of, of divine and to communicate that form of divine to the rest of us? Um, is there a warning in what we have here? Uh, for us in today's times. You know, this was written 2,400 years ago, but where is it? Is it relevant today? What are people's thoughts about this, this particular section and this, this idea of representation and illusion and, and, and how, we, how we avoid this trap maybe? And is it a trap that maybe the people of Atlantis got caught in? JK, what are your thoughts? Yeah, we're still uh, susceptible to um, concepts that um, that others, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> come up with and uh, and uh, and uh, in input into our minds, and uh, that's sometimes it's called propaganda or politics or just conspiracy theories, right? About what is true and not true, and it's pretty pervasive, you know, uh, that you know, on the mass media. Uh, now that we have, uh, you know, <clears throat> personal personal media that that, uh, that we have access to um, on a daily basis, on a minute by minute basis, mm -hmm. where these things, uh, these concepts are, uh, you know, pervade, and um, <clears throat> so you know we're we're all constantly susceptible to these uh, co uh, concepts of what is divine or what is, uh, you know, you know what is virtue, you know what is uh, right and wrong and so forth. Mm -hmm. Very much, I think. And, and I'm wondering, you know, does this relate at all to the way that Plato ended this dialogue or didn't end the dialogue as, as, you, as one might believe? Some, some believe he didn't end it. Some believe he didn't end it um, deliberately. Some believe he didn't end it by accident. He meant to get back to it. Um, why did he end it with that Zeus said dot, dot, dot? Um, you know, and, and I think maybe one might remember here that Plato was a dramatist. He was a playwright before he became a geometer and philosopher. Um, and as that, he was an artist. And did he want to represent 
what the divine was saying. I, I just wanted to bring that. That really struck me about the ending of this of this dialogue. That really struck me about the ending of this dialogue. Uh, that it's it's an attempt not to represent. Maybe it goes back to what Joel said: is we can only describe the divine by what it is not. And and is that the reason why Plato ended this dialogue the way he did? I just I wanted to put that out there because I that's a I wanted to get to that ending before we end uh, today. So uh, we'll go to Moshe and then Eric. Moshe, two things. Um, the Western mind um, uh, falls into a trap, I think, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, to the divine. We, we can speak uh, reams. There's literature abounding of what hell is like. Okay, we know what eternity is like. Uh, you know, Dante's 13, 13 hells and things like that. And um, so, and, and we could do the same thing with God. Uh, we have to arrogate ourselves to the point that we say that we can do it, but we arrogate ourselves to the same extent when we can describe what, what internal, uh, eternal damnation is like. So uh, Western people have no, no qualms against, uh, you know, claiming the intellectual high ground uh, in areas where they have absolutely no knowledge at all and are simply making it up as artfully uh, as they can as they go. So that's one thing. Uh, I think that we can describe God in, in positive terms. We're not limited to just negative terms to describe him. The other thing about the paragraph, but the other thing is about the paragraph that you read. And it reminds me of what Jane said earlier about having humility. You know, we should not, um, you know, we have to have uh, humility when we um, uh, describe uh, what the gods are going to be like or what divinity is going to be like, because the very last paragraph, uh, the very last sentence in there says that, you know, if you put that slide up again, it says that when we, um, uh, when we listen to somebody talking about, um, yes, we embrace what is said about the heavens and things divine with enthusiasm, even when what is said is quite implausible. But we are nice critics of what is said of mortals and human beings. And by nice, he's, if that's a good translation, uh, he's being quite ironic because he was talking previously in, the, in that paragraph about how we, um, how we, um, uh, uh, how we can be very critical about a person's painting of a body because we know what a body looks like. So being a nice critic doesn't mean I'm being a sweet critic. It means I'm really nice as a critic and I can really let you have it. Um, so what we have to do, I think, when we are, um, uh, we, have to be, uh, we have to be humble uh, in all things when it comes to the interpretation of what the divine is, something that we can not have um, um, uh, scientific knowledge about. Uh, that being said, I, I, I still stand by my first point that, that to the extent that we can be uh, super descriptive about what eternal damnation is, we can be super descriptive as well about what, uh, uh, about what you know, life in heaven would be like. Thank you, Moshe, and, and for, for highlighting that last sentence in what we read. You know, I think that's the, maybe that is a, um, Maybe that's a little bit of a warning uh, based on what the um, citizens of Atlantis 
faced uh, by following those uh, inscriptions written in the stele in the stone that uh, you know that uh, um, that that's that's where they that 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 was part of their problem. Um, we'll go to Eric. Eric. Uh, yeah, uh, just a few things. Um, one, it's a shame that Joel left uh, during the reading during that last reading because I think that section definitely shares, you know, uh, shares the same skepticism that he kind of brought up, and I think uh, it's very poignant for the fact that it was mentioned in this in this dialogue, kind of at the top of the dialogue. Um, two, uh, the second thing is, uh, um, uh, well, I forget the second thing, but to, 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 um, to uh, Moshe's points, I mean, as far as the, uh, um, western mind and kind of like the uh, proclamations or declarations of uh, the western intellectual and the western politician whatever it might be someone who's kind of who's like very motivated in the human realm you know the political realm kind of you know taking their cue from aristotle uh, that uh, the human is a political animal for example um you know these are the this mind uh and this uh you know, I'm not going to use the word arrogance, but there you go, um, is kind of like, it's the same mind that uh, Socrates kind of sat across from again and again in, in these dialogues. And I just, I guess I just wanted to mention or uh, remind that, uh, you know, Socrates is, uh, was as skeptical and ironic in any kind of uh, grand declaration. He always kind of kept his distance from what, could be said um, uh, about anything and uh, 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 about anything absolute, let's say. Um, and uh, as far as, you know, kind of to Joel's point too, that you, uh, we can, we only talk about the divine as uh, regarding things that it is not, or that, you know, wondering if that's all we can do, um, you know, Again, just to remind, you know, Socrates had a personal daemon, and I guess as it was described, or, you know, it was described that he had one, and uh, uh, according to the description, it only told him what it was not. It also kind of spoke in these negative terms, like what not to do, what he should kind of uh, move away from, but it didn't really have any positive, like according to, as far as I know, uh, didn't have any really positive assertions. Um, so when he's kind of, when Socrates was sitting across from these kind of, these, these minds that were convinced that they were right, you know, regarding their profession, regarding their place in society and cosmos, whatever, um, you know, he was always able to recognize by listening to this uh, personal daemon and just uh, for hours, you know, just standing there kind of in deep kind of meditative uh, thought. Um, and also in the moment too, I suppose, becoming a bit skeptical and ironic with the uh, declarations of others um, across from him that uh, whatever they're saying, it's not, you know, it's not, they, they don't have it right as far as their conceptions of, uh, you know, what it is they're doing as a, you know, as a doctor, perhaps, you know, what is, you know, uh, how do they apply their knowledge to things like health uh, and politicians too, like whatever that they think is the good, it's not that. And uh, um, Socrates seemed to be at, at least convinced always that 
uh, what he was hearing was not it. Uh, so I just wanted to bring up that Socrates never made these absolute uh, declarations, I guess, or, you know, he was always very, he kept his distance from them. Um, and Plato, on the other hand, as a contrast, seemed to have more of a project uh, in mind uh, that he, like, he was presenting these things. Um, and it might have been the fact that he was writing, right, that he, you know, that he was kind of setting into stone, stone so to speak, um, these, these thoughts and was able to kind of, oh, and that, all right, so that's it. And then the second thing that I was going to say is, yes, uh, as far as it, uh, as far as the, um, the dialogue ending with Enzu says dot, 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 I mean, as far as it being like, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's very compelling as a dramatic flourish that he left the question open-ended, um, whether or not the text was corrupted or he actually finished it uh, as a dramatist, if that was kind of how he was thinking about it. Uh, it's very effective that he kind of leaves open-ended what Zeus might have said. Thank you. Thank you. It's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, certainly Socrates' method of asking questions and not presenting absolute con con conclusions is really part of Plato's method maybe as well. And maybe that's kind of evident in the way that this dialogue ended instead of pretending to know what the words of Zeus were. Um, Plato is leaving it to us in the realm of becoming uh, to define what that is. Um, so I thought that was a, in, in the way you put it, that there were no absolutes, I think maybe ties to what Joel said earlier about maybe being able to describe the divine only by what the divine is not, and that, that list can be endless. Um, and so I think that's something well worth uh, thinking about. And the other thing worth thinking about, I think, is this idea again, this idea of the perhaps circular nature of time, which again is presented at the beginning of Timaeus in that uh, we go through these cycles where civilizations are built and then various cataclysms cause their their, their destruction and then we are reborn as children. We, we lose memory of all of that uh, because of the cataclysm that has destroyed. And then we have to go and rediscover and we don't want to maybe get caught in these um, uh, these almost like feedback loops of thinking that we know when we in fact don't know. And it was Socrates who said that he was the smartest man alive because he knew one thing, which is that he didn't, that he knew nothing. And that was kind of what the Oracle said about him. Um, and so maybe that's this idea that we really have to question what we think we know. Um, so we'll go to uh, JK and then Greg and Jane. JK. Yeah. So you said Socrates was uh, was an ironist, but uh, Plato was even more so himself being an artist, right? Uh, uh, praising the artist at the same time, he uh, banished the artist, you know, from his uh, model of uh, you know of, of society um, in the Republic. Um, but he kind of like uh, you know um, talked about Atlantis as uh, as the, as a society that. Um, that have fallen because of uh, these, uh, you know, ideas of notions of divinity inscribed on in stone, right? And kind of, it kind of reminds me of uh, the, the Ten Commandments, you know, maybe also something similar to that, and maybe kind of, uh, you know, uh, understood, you know, what it, you know, what it means when, uh, when, uh, you know, societies are uh, established on um, on these ideas. 
of, uh, of what is divine and so forth. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's all I have to say. I think it's this, this idea, you know, perhaps of, I heard this term uh, was said by Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, who wrote Plato at the Googleplex, and uh, I'm a big fan of Rebecca's. And she used this term in a lecture that I was listening to about epistemic responsibility. And, you know, maybe if you think of time as a circle instead of a straight line, your responsibility in the circle never never begins and never ends. It's, uh, it's continuously ongoing because that's one of the properties of a circle, right? The circle has no beginning and no end. Um, and so maybe this is part of the, the lesson here is that maybe don't think about time as a straight line because if you think of time as a straight line, then you know, you're only going to ever see a progression and, and you, you, your epistemic responsibility in that context is more limited. But if you think of time as a circle, you know, these cycles of creation and destruction continuously going on, uh, then the epistemic responsibility is quite endless. So I just wanted to raise that point and maybe we can get to that last slide before we end, but we'll go to Greg and then to Jane. Yeah, I'd just like to, uh, you know, make a, make a point. You know, uh, you know uh, I think Rosh uh, and uh, JK earlier too, I mentioned a bit about, you know, this uh, thing about the Western thinking, about this divineness and, uh, and the form. And I say for implying uh, that uh, the Eastern have a different way of thinking than that. And being someone grown up in the East and then read quite a bit uh, about the Chinese philosophy and so on, I would say that that is a, a bit of a misconception there, that the, the East, particularly China, uh, in those early days, now that we, you know, we, we think that they, they have a you know, different version of a divine and form, they don't. Uh, divine was, a Chinese, uh, was not a Chinese concept, never was. And so was the form. The early Chinese thinkers never thought about a form. These thinkers like Confucian all these, they are only concerned at the social morality. And so, so the, 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 the Oriental thinker has always been a mystic. They never really had uh, uh, gone through the root of Western, which is, uh, in, my, in my view, rationalism. It never has been in China. And uh, the way that Western people these days uh, talk about uh, the ancient uh, thinkers, the, their thinking, they romanticize. And also, they add a lot of new, new uh, modern conception to add to them, as if they had, they don't. So, so the, the, the ancient Chinese philosophy have its own kind of richness and idea regarding, uh, you know, how human life should be and society, but that remain at the mystical level. Like sort of at the homos level, you would say they never come to the Plato level, and, and that's why that, that yes they have some ideas concepts, but they never really rationalize, never really come to the, the same idealization that the Western has. But anyway, that just that sort of uh, you know kind of comments from my, my kind of understanding. Well, thank you, and I think that's a good illustration of the fact that you know we all have different ways of approaching. Um, our understanding of time and of knowledge um, and those understandings are individual or individually driven but they're also uh, driven by particular societies and so um, you know does one society have any 
uh, greater franchise on the truth than another society on this planet? Or are we all, you know, children of the same truth? Um, so we'll go to Jane and then maybe we'll have a chance to read that last bit as we, as we wrap up today's session. Jane? Uh, to answer the question that you just asked, James, well, this is just obviously my my personal perspective, but I don't think that there is one there is one uh, civilization or country that has this one uh, truth. And to me, it would seem that every country or civilization or any other type typology that we could use, um, they sort of hold pieces or little shards of the truth. So, and the way that I guess I'm I'm beginning to see what is uh, the sort of dichotomy of being and becoming is that becoming is it's necessary obviously like i think this was, was mentioned by many people during the discussion for creativity and development and progress and the reason is that it is through becoming which is a sort of is a potential way of getting at least a little hold of what is being so that is why we need to always progress and develop because it is only through becoming that we can get any sort of grasp up, up on what is being. And I also wanted to add a little bit to what um, Eric was saying to continue about the, the daimon always saying what not to do and how Joel mentioned that we, we don't know what divinity is, but we don't, what, but we can try to find out what it's not. And it's actually interesting that Socrates never said that he knew anything. He just always says said that pretty much he didn't know anything. And when he was called um, by, to be one of the wisest, or I think he was called the wisest person, the only reason he came to the conclusion after talking to all the wisest people, uh, the, the only reason he came to think that he was the wisest is because he knew that he knew nothing. And I think this sort of, I guess, fits into that logic chain of, of, well, not not of, of events, but of, of facts from the Platonic world that he he never said that he knew something, but he was he he always claimed that he did not know anything. And this is, I guess, a way of I, if we try to go further into dissecting what is becoming and what is being, it would seem that becoming is not knowing, and being is knowledge. So, sort of knowledge is divinity but the only way that the mortal can reach it is by trying to obtain knowledge but being very very humble about it at least that's the way i saw it and um quick last note about the um linear and circular perception of time uh when i was uh, doing um, intercultural studies we had one of the parameters that we used to assess different cultures is actually this conception of time of linear and circular so, for example, if, if we use the, the division of Western and Eastern cultures, a lot of the Eastern cultures lean closer to the circular perception of time rather than the linear one. And obviously, the more Western countries are closer to the linear perception of time. Thank you. That's interesting. You know, I think that's uh, I think that's a discussion that we can certainly continue. It's It's something that really came out. To me, when I when I read this dialogue and when I listened to that ancient Greece declassified podcast, because he mentions that specifically, that uh, that you know, if time is circular, I think that really changes our perspective on a number of things, and I think that's maybe something that we need to consider. Um, 
I'll just, we'll just take, if it's okay, we'll take five minutes to, to wrap up here. I just wanted to read that last, uh, that last bit from 121C. And as I do so, I just wanted to kind of reiterate that point about epistemic responsibility that, uh, that I made and just to maybe kind of echo what Eric was saying uh, in his last comment. I was reading, um, this was actually a promotion by New Scientist magazine, which I really like, a really good magazine, but they're promoting an event uh, and it's on, on AI. And their promotion to, for the event says, humans may not be Earth's most intelligent species for much longer. Given the rapid pace of progress in AI, many predict that AI could advance to human-level intelligence within the next several decades. From there, it could quickly outpace human intelligence. And I thought that was kind of an interesting statement that, you know, we could build things that outpace our own intelligence. So where does this extra intelligence come from? Uh, and maybe it's this kind of, is it a misperception that these technological things that are developed are separate and apart from the intelligence that actually develops them? Are they not derivatives of the intelligence that that begat them? Um, so that was an interesting kind of comment that I just thought kind of related to this idea about, you know, this ultimate form of intelligence that people seem to be searching for. Also, I heard in a uh, quote by a physicist giving a uh, podcast, he quoted Stephen Hawking, who was a great physicist, and Hawking said, uh, if, we, if we all have a part in the final theory, if we discover a final theory of everything, quote, then we shall all, philosophers, scientists, and just ordinary people, be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is that we and the universe exist. If we find the answer to that, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we would know the mind of God. And, you know, I don't know if, if when Hawking wrote that, he was in attempting to uh, echo Timaeus 28a, that to understand uh, that which always is and never becomes. In other words, the being that Jane was just talking about, you need that reasoned account. Um, but I wanted to end by, by this, this quote from uh, 121c of Critias. And this is the ending of the dialogue. Uh, but as Zeus, god of the gods, reigning as king according to law, could clearly see the state of affairs, and he's talking about the state of affairs in, in Atlantis, this, this decay that somebody had mentioned earlier, um, he observed this noble race lying in this abject state and resolved to punish them and to make them more careful and harmonious as a result of their chastisement. And I wanted to highlight that word harmonious. To this end, he called all the gods to their most honored abode, which stands at the middle of the universe and looks down upon all that has a share in generation. And when he gathered them together, he said, and so we end the dialogue. And so I just wanted us to reflect on that ending to kind of think, well, do we have sufficient harmony to understand what the divine being has said. Um, is, is this something that we can write down in stone? If we understood what the divine being said, would we write it down in stone and would we make all future generations adhere to this? Um, powerful thought. So I, I just wanted to leave people with that, uh, with that idea. Um, as we wrap up uh, another discussion, it's been an absolutely great discussion. 
Uh, and I wanted to thank all the the new and returning participants to uh, to today. And I'm looking forward to our next discussion on Euthyphro, which is going to pick up on this idea of the divine and the word of the divine. Um, so we'll do that in in two weeks. So I will pass it over to Eva to wrap up today's recording. Thank you, James. Thank you for joining, friends. As inspiring as it gets, this is another discussion that we don't want to leave, as usual. We believe Plato, if Latin, would be proud of all these reasonings. We'll be adding an unrecorded part, Plato's Cafe, starting next episode. Please follow up with that uh, on future meetup posts. We meet through Toronto Philosophy Meetup, Calgary Philosophy Meetup, and Online Rebels. James, thank you for leading and preparing all this. Thank you for giving us the chance to share and ask our questions. I'm Eva Alice. This was Plato's Pot. Until next episode, friends. So long. Bye.